BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. On the line with us is Dr. Christopher Ryan, Ph.D., author of five books, including his latest, Civilized to Death, The Price of Progress. His website, Chris Ryan, C-H-R-I-S-R-Y-A-N-P-H-D.com. And his Twitter handle is that Chris Ryan. Oh, yeah, that Chris Ryan. Hey, Chris, welcome to the program and congratulations on this book, Civilized to Death. I've, I've bought at least a dozen copies so far. Um, I think you did a great, great job of uh, going down a, a path that, that I started down back in 1996 in my book, The Last Hours of Ancient Sunlight. About a third of the book is devoted to ancient civilizations or pre-civilizations and hunting, gathering and all this kind of stuff. And uh, you have taken it so much farther and done, and done so much on it. It's just brilliant. And I wanted to thank you for that and, and get you on. So, so, so let's, dig, you. let's dig into it. You've got some great points. And I love your Civilized to Death cocktail party cheat sheet. So let me just run through some of this stuff. You know, uh, you know Thomas Hobbes uh, told us famously when he published Leviathan back in, what, 1634, as I recall, um, that uh, prior to the uh, civilization, before humans had to deal with the iron fist of church or state, that the natural state of mankind, of humankind, um, was terrible, that there was you know, no arts, no letters, no communication, no transportation. Life was nasty, short, and brutish. What say you? I say that Hobbes was wrong on every point, and um, you know we don't necessarily need to blame him because he didn't have any archaeological or anthropological data to work with. So uh, he was just sort of pulling these these things out of the air, and uh, and Hobbes did what what most of us do. Um, he looked at the world that he knew and extrapolated from that. Um, you know, you and I about ten years ago talked about uh, a previous book that I co-authored called Sex at Dawn, mm-hmm. and in that book we we called this tendency Flintstoneization, right? To sort of look at the world you know and just make it older and call that prehistory, um, and that's what Hobbes was doing. He lived in an extremely violent, uh, disease-ridden, conflict-ridden, insecure world. And he just assumed that it must have been even worse uh, back in the day before the state was there to uh, exert a bit of control over so the So if situation. it wasn't worse, what was it like? Well, it turns out, uh, you know, Hobbes said famously that life before the state was solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. Um, before the advent of the state, let's look at solitary. It was much less solitary. There, uh, hunter-gatherers have a very intense sense of community and uh, cooperation and mutual dependence. So certainly not solitary. Uh, poor. Well, uh, poverty is an invention of civilization. Poverty is a relative status where we, some people, have much less than others. In hunter-gatherer societies, um, universally organized around egalitarianism and the sharing of resources. So in such a situation, there's no poverty because everyone has the same access to resources. Um, Nasty, brutish, uh, there's a lot of controversy about how violent societies were before the advent of agriculture. I think the evidence is quite strong that violence 
extreme violence and certainly organized warfare is very much a result of agriculture and accumulated resources where there's something worth fighting over. In nomadic, immediate return hunter-gathering societies, there's no wealth. There's, there's nothing gathered uh, and accumulated that's worth stealing or defending. Um, in short, one of the great misunderstandings that people have about prehistoric life, and I hear this all the time, is we've doubled the human lifespan. People died at 35. No one lived past 35. I even hear this from medical doctors, and this is hogwash. This is totally uh, misinformed. No human being has ever been old at the age of 35. Our species regularly lives into their 70s and 80s, even as hunter-gatherers. The misunderstanding came about, as you know, from um, statistical. Yeah. What? It's infant mortality that was driving those Exactly, numbers. exactly. And infant mortality is quite high among hunter-gatherers. So when you do the math, you get an average lifespan, uh, life expectancy at birth of around 35 to 40, but that doesn't mean anyone was ever old at 35 or 40. Right. One wonders if, if that's the natural state of humankind and infant mortality was relatively high, if that was one of the things that evolution, I mean, just taking humans and human intent out of this altogether and viewing us as just another animal, if that's one of the ways that evolution had prepared us to have a relatively stable population, um, you know, uh, compared to our, our potential for fertility. But you point out in the book that also uh, hunting gathering people, uh, mothers tend to nurse their, their babies for two, three, four years, and during that period of time, they're not fertile. They, they typically can't, can't get pregnant. This, right. I remember reading, uh, in, when I was reading Jefferson's diaries like 25 years ago, and he was uh, you know, going on and on about how the, the uh, Iroquois around him uh, had babies every five to seven years. And he was like, how do they do that? How is that even possible? <laughs> And, uh, you know, and he thought it was a marvelous thing. He thought it was a great, you know, but, but he said he made a comment that, you know, uh, uh, women in, in, um, in Virginia were more like uh, uh, cows, basically, you know, just constantly producing babies. Um, uh, not, not the women themselves, but, you know, the, 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 the situation. So uh, yeah. modern medicine, well, actually, I want to put this in a larger frame and then and then pull back from that for a moment. Neither you uh, in your book, uh, Civilized to Death, or in, in me in my book, uh, Last Hours of Ancient Sunlight, are proposing that we just all of a sudden walk away from civilization and go live in the woods. What if we if we stop telling ourselves these myths about how horrible life was for humans before civilization, or how horrible life must be right now for humans who live, you know, in the few remaining wild places in the world. If we stop telling ourselves those myths and start understanding the, the you know, these consequential and fundamental realities, and I think science is really bringing us there with things like, you know, I don't, I don't know if you're familiar with the work of uh, Richard Wilkinson and Kate Pickett, the Equality Trust in the UK, that m the more unequal a society becomes, the more you see disease, uh, teenage pregnancy, uh, homicide, suicide, crime, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's all, and, and it's not out of poverty, it's out of inequality because it makes us crazy. So what are the things that you would suggest we learn from pre-agricultural people to bring into our post-agricultural society? Well, that's a great question. Uh, you know, I look at it as uh, one of the images that I used in the book was visiting the, a zoo in um, Indonesia. That was a very sad, brutal place. It was just cages with primates trapped in these cages. And then years later, I visited the San Diego Zoo, which was a totally different experience. And the reason it's a different experience is that the San Diego Zoo is designed with an understanding of the animals that live there, where they come from, where they evolved, what food works best for them, what social system works best, how much space they need. Um, and I think that that's what we need to do for ourselves. We're the only species that lives in zoos that we ourselves have designed. 
you know, we've created our own conditions of captivity. And you're right, there's no way we're going back to a hunter-gatherer existence. So what we can do is we can create our artificial world with an understanding of the world that created us. Um, and that will lead to much more meaningful, healthy lives. And you see, you see it's happening already. It's, it's an interesting thing. In all these different fields, people are starting to understand that the way forward requires an understanding of our deep past. So in medicine, people are looking at what kind of diets did our ancestors eat? How much fiber? What about microbiome? How did they move? How often did they move? How vigorously did they move? Um, you, you know, you're seeing all sorts of areas uh, with primal as a prefix, right? Because mm -hmm. people are understanding that the primal mm, blueprint actually really works well for our species. If you want to understand your dog's behavior, look at wolves, right? That's mm -hmm. where your dog came from. So by understanding the behavior of wolves, you'll have insight into how to interact with your dog better. Right, so we can learn from these. Chris, you can stick around for a little bit, right? Please. Okay, I'd love to extend this conversation. Uh, we are talking with Christopher Ryan, uh, Dr. Christopher Ryan. He is the author of a new book, Civilized to Death, The Price of Progress. Chris Ryan, PhD, is his website. That Chris Ryan is his Twitter handle. Chris, you know, one of the things that when I was doing research for Last Hours of Ancient Sunlight, one of the things that uh, really fascinated me was reading Peter Farb. Are, are you familiar with Peter Farb? I don't think so, no. He wrote two books uh, in the 60s. One was uh, called Humankind, which a, a Dutch writer has basically rewritten a brand new version of that, that is almost a clone of, of Farb's book, except it's completely up to date with all kinds of new research. I'm forgetting his name right now. Uh, Rutger Bregman. Thank you, yes. And it's a brilliant book, but if you go back and read Humankind by Peter Farb, you get where, you know, <laughs> what he was doing with that book. But he, he also wrote a book called Man's Rise to Civilization and the Native American, which was astonishing. It's the story of, uh, he compiled first contact stories with, mm. of Native American communities around North America. And I think he looks at 34 of them, as I recall. It's been more than 20 years since I read the book. So I, you know, it's, I'm sorry, it's not right at the tip of my brain, all the details. But many of, if not most, of the Native American societies, at least in the American South and parts of the American West, were highly agricultural at that point, as we are. They were settled. The communities, for example, there was a, a giant tribe that lived near what we would uh, today call New Orleans. And they were pyramid builders. And so that society, in order to maintain social stability, had a caste system, much like the uh, old Indian caste system. There were four castes. The top caste was the, the sun gods. They were the ancestors of the sun gods. There were two middle castes. I don't remember the names. And the bottom caste was the equivalent of the untouchables, and they were called the stinkards. And the requirement in their society was that you always had to marry somebody who was two castes away from you. So every family had in their owned personal direct family, sun gods, stinkers, and everybody else. And what it did was it created a social consensus for a high level of equality within the society, even though they had created these four castes, largely for division of labor. Who's going to do what? You know, the stinkards weren't quite as oppressed as we see in India today. But that was just one example that just kind of blew my mind. The book is filled with them. Do you know of anybody who is, or have you considered proposing ways that we can reinvent American or human, modern human society in ways that promote egalitarianism? Or is it just, you know, we all just start following Bernie Sanders? We have 30 seconds till we're gonna boot into the next segment. Yeah, we definitely have to all marry stinkers, I think. I've got a few in my family, for sure. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, I, one of the things that I tried to do in Civilized to Death was talk about the question of inequality from a different 
angle. And the angle is that, you know, we're always talking about the one percenters and how unfair it is that they've accumulated all this wealth and resources. And, and it's true. It's all I agree with that 100%. But the real irony is that they aren't happy either. Right. Let's continue. Inequality uh, makes everyone miserable. We'll continue this on the other side of this break. We're talking with Christopher Ryan. His new book, Civilized to Death, is just absolutely extraordinary. Talking with Christopher Ryan about his new book, Civilized to Death. Chris, we were just talking about how Peter Farb was documenting how Native American societies that had become agricultural figured out internal cultural ways to have stability and egalitarianism. Jefferson wrote about the potlatch. He went to several of them where people would compete to see how much they could give away. The more you gave away at these annual events, the higher your status. And he also noted that hoarding of goods was considered a mental illness among the Iroquois. These were, you know, relatively modern post-agricultural societies. What can we learn from that? What can we do with our society? Is it just a matter of, you know, we all do what the Norwegians and the Danish have done that Bernie Sanders is recommending, or are there other things? Well, we need to approach it systematically and also individually. So systematically, it's the sorts of stuff that you've been advocating for for a long time. And Bernie Sanders, sort of a social Democrat uh, approach to life where resources are distributed much more equitably. But on a personal level, and I was referring to this before the break, I think that we need to uh, sort of illuminate the fact that Extreme wealth hurts everyone involved. Being extremely wealthy, sure, you've got gold-plated faucets in your bathroom, but you're very isolated. It's psychologically a very difficult position to be in because you lose the sense of community. And the one thing, you know, we're talking about diet and exercise patterns and all that, but the other uh, sort of very important information that we learn when we study our ancestors is that the most important thing that that we have to make us happy and to make our lives meaningful is a sense of community. If you feel embedded in a community of loving people, that's a more important factor in your health and longevity than your weight, your whether you smoke or not, how much exercise you get, any other factor you look at pales in comparison to whether you feel that you are part of a community of people who love you and have your back. When you're extremely wealthy, you sacrifice that. You don't have that kind of community because you're worried everyone's trying to take advantage of you. Everyone has an angle. They're trying to pitch you something. Um, and ironically, when the, the money that we're all pursuing is corrosive to some of the most important things in life. So I think on a personal level, if, if we can understand that pursuing money is not actually going to solve your problems, it's going to create a lot of problems, and we can be much happier with much less, then it's not that radical a proposal. We're not trying to take away anyone's well-being. Everyone benefits yeah. in a more equitable society. Yeah, I had a friend whose father invented Formica. He was born with a $700 million trust fund, and we knew him for three decades. And one day, just in a kind of random, he was showing me a print that he had just gotten by, you know, one of the Dutch masters that was worth millions. And he just all of a sudden started crying. And I was like, what? What's going on? And he, and he was like, you and Louise are, I think, the only friends that I've had in years who've never asked me for anything, who don't hit me up yeah. for donations, who don't see me as, as money bags. And it just broke my heart. I mean, this guy was a, a good friend, a very rich guy, but a good friend who I'd known for a long, long time. I just see there's so much pain in this world, and so much of it is being caused by greed. I think your book puts its finger, I think with this book, you put your finger on some really critical values that we need to consider adopting as a society. And I strongly encourage anybody, everybody out there to get a copy of this extraordinary new book, Civilized to Death. Price of Progress. Christopher Ryan, thanks so much for dropping by, Chris. Great talking. Thanks for having me, Tom. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Anytime. That Chris Ryan, 
phd.com and well the book just check out the book civilized to death you're going to love it it's a it's a short read it's an easy read Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Today in the Tom Harmon Book Club, we're featuring The Inner Level by Richards, Wilkinson, and Kate Pickett. It's a new book. The subtitle is How More Equal Societies Reduce Stress, Restore Sanity, and Improve Everyone's Well-Being. This is in Chapter 6, The Misconception of Meritocracy, page 161. Boris Johnson, the former mayor of London who became foreign secretary in Theresa May's conservative government in 2016, was educated at Eton and Oxford. Giving the Margaret Thatcher lecture to a think tank in 2013, he articulated the view that economic equality will never be possible because some people are simply too stupid to catch up with the rest of society. Quote, whatever you may think of the value of IQ tests, it is surely relevant to a conversation about equality that as many as 16% of our species have an IQ below 85. Comparing society to a box of cornflakes, he praised inequality for creating the conditions under which the brightest triumph. Quote, the harder you shake the pack, the easier it will be for some cornflakes to get to the top, end quote. Inequality, quote, is essential for the spirit of envy and keeping up with the Joneses that is, like greed, a valuable spur to economic activity. Whether or not Johnson is quite as clever a cornflake as he presumably likes to think, he certainly is not in command of the facts. Nobel Prize winning economists, as well as the OECD and IMF, have shown how inequality, far from spurring on economic growth, leads to stagnation and instability. Social mobility is reduced where income inequality is greatest and far from inspiring innovation. It turns out that there are actually slightly more patents granted per head of population in more equal countries. And as we've seen in the previous chapters, there's also the undeniable human cost of our fixation with keeping up with the Joneses. But Boris is far from alone in his misconceptions about the relationships between inequality and ability. The idea that people are naturally endowed with differences in ability, intelligence, or talent, and that those differences then determine how far up the social ladder they reach, is a powerful popular justification for social hierarchy. The presumption is that we live in a meritocracy in which the key to status is ability. We think of society as shaped like a pyramid. The supposition is that most people are near the bottom or only a little above it because the bulk of the population lack the special talents that we imagine people need to get to the top. The belief that differences in ability are the main influence on where people end up on the social ladder is so strong that we tend to judge everyone's personal worth, ability, and intelligence by their position in society. Nor is this confined simply to how we judge others. It also affects how people see themselves. Those at the top often believe that they're there because they are naturally endowed with plenty of the right stuff just as many of those near the bottom think that their low status reflects a lack of ability. That picture, however, is not supported by the latest scientific evidence. 
First, research now shows that a very major part of what happens to people and where they end up is the result of totally unpredictable influences and occurrences amounting to pure luck. Second, aside from luck, the most important links that exist between ability and status operate in the opposite direction of that imagined by most people. Rather than different endowments of talents determining position in the hierarchy, it's much nearer the truth to say that position in the hierarchy determines abilities, interests, and talents. But let's address luck first. Whether or not we consider ourselves successful, most of us can probably look back across our own life histories and recognize the roles that luck and chance have played in getting us to where we are. We're perhaps lucky with schools or teachers, with the questions on an important exam, with some nameless person dealing with university applications, or we got on well with an interviewer when applying for a job. Perhaps a chance meeting was important, or perhaps an opportunity for promotion came up unexpectedly. Finding a life partner is just as important for our quality of life as our career or income, but we are far happier to acknowledge that chance and luck played a key role in meeting that person than we are in acknowledging luck's role in our career. No one minds mentioning the chance meeting, the circumstances that put you both at ease with each other, or the shared interest that might easily have gone unrecognized. The role of chance makes people's lives highly unpredictable. Although there are huge social class biases and social mobility, there are at the same time vast numbers of people moving up or down the social ladder in ways that even the most detailed analysis of parenting and ability fail to predict. Similarly, although there are differences of perhaps 10 years in the average life expectancy of upper and lower social classes, that explains very little of the individual differences in how long people live. Inevitably, some rich people will die young and some people live in poverty to a great age. And as some public health mavericks used to say, even if you exercised, ate healthy, and didn't smoke, your most likely cause of death was still heart disease. In addition to all this, there may be a large element of chance in whatever our experiences, including subjective experiences, trigger the kind of epigenetic changes affecting subsequent development that we discussed in the last chapter. Just as the development of weather systems is sometimes said to be so chaotic it can be changed by the flapping of a butterfly's wings, so what amounts to chance events at the social or the cellular level are now thought to play a very substantial part in our lives. So much so, the scientists have worried that if random chance and luck are such important determinants of whether or not an individual becomes sick, gets good exam results, or has a good marriage, it becomes difficult to understand causal pathways at all. The book The Inner Level by Wilkinson and Pickett. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. And uh, let's pick up some of your phone calls here. Adam in Youngstown, Ohio. Hey, Adam, what's on your mind today? Tom, long time no speak. How's the shoulder? It's much better. Thank oh, good you. deal. What's on your mind? I've heard that all the conservative talking heads are now all up in arms about the Keystone Pipeline people and how they've lost all their work. I've got a better idea, and it's basic supply and demand. How about we build back better either with the infrastructure plan or after it and we run, instead of tar sands oil, life-giving water from our Gulf region that is getting slammed with too much water and pump it out west where we <laughs> desperately need it. Yeah. Uh, I d Why aren't we doing that? I, I don't think the architecture uh, you know, or structure of the pipelines were put into place or designed or even, you know, with any thinking even. Uh, toward that, and you know, the the places that need water, the places that have surpluses of water, are very different from the places that produce oil and the places where they're refining the oil. So I, you know, respectfully, I don't think that's going to work. So anyhow, Martin in Atlanta. Hey, Martin, what's on your mind today? Yeah, basically there is corruption in the Democratic Party. Sorry to say, it's not as widespread as Republican. But my question basically would be, well, why would any Democrat? vote against SB1. What is it in SB1 that is so egregious to them? Oh, that it's, they the, would... it's the ban on dark money. And you've got Democrats exactly. who are in the position that they're in because dark money has gotten them there and they want to keep, keep that. And I think that uh, Joe Manchin and Cinema, or jo, yeah, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema are among them. I, uh, you know, from what I'm hearing, there's probably another half a dozen or maybe even more in the Senate. And uh, that's that's the specific thing that they're very upset about. I'm, you know, I, I, I totally get it. Martin, thanks for the call. Daryl in Denville, New Jersey. In fact, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez called this out three days ago. Daryl in Denville, New Jersey. You're on the air, Daryl. What's up? 
Hey, Tom. Hey, uh, just to follow up on that last call, one way you could fix that is uh, term limits, right? No, no. The problem, then you, then what we've seen now in, in the in the six or eight states that have put into place term limits is that when you, when there is this thing called institutional memory that is like really, really important. If you're a new member of Congress, you want to hook up with somebody who's been around for a long, long time so that they can tell you how things get done, where the bodies are buried, how, how, how you know, who's most effective and who isn't, you know, where the resources are, where the men's room is or the ladies room, whatever. And what happens with term limits is the institutional memory of the institution itself, of the House of Representatives or the Senate for that state, is shattered. And so what steps in to replace that are the lobbyists who never go anywhere. So you've got lobbyists who've been there 20 and 30 years, and they know all those things. And so they take the new members of Congress under their wing and say, here's how it works. And what we, and there's multiple studies on this, Daryl. There's not, nobody's even disputing this anymore. That when you have term limits, what you end for, for legislative bodies, I mean, you can argue that there's a difference when it comes to something like the president or the governorship. But when you have term limits for legislative bodies, what happens is the power of lobbyists is radically increased and the effectiveness of the legislature is radically decreased. Um, well, I, can't, I guess I don't buy that because what we have now is just so dysfunctional that we can't get anything big done. Nothing. Yeah, There's but that's not because of the failure of term limits. That's, that's, <laughs> that's because yeah. you've got Republicans who have rigged the system. It's, it's gerrymanders across red states and, and purple states. It's, uh, you know, uh, voter suppression. I mean, there's a whole spectrum of reasons for that. But we do have term limits, Daryl. They're called elections. But why are they doing that? They're doing that to keep their seat. That's why they're doing it. They're not doing it to preserve the seat for the next guy. Of course. They're doing it because they want to stay in office. Of and course. that's where term limits come in. No, they will, continue to, they will continue to do it to benefit their party with the knowledge that after six years or four years or eight years or whatever the term limit is in Congress, they will have been able to, this, this is another reason why term limits actually increase the power of lobbyists, is if you give up your career to go serve in, in a state legislature or in the federal legislature, knowing that you're only going to be there eight years. And during those eight years, the lobbyists are like, you know, hey, you know, eight years from now, you've got to pay, for, you've got to provide for your family. We will make but sure here at Eli Lilly and Company, we will make sure to give you a $2 million a year job. No problem for the rest of your life if you just make sure that our new drug gets approved. Tom, but that's what the founders intended. No, they it's didn't not. intend these guys. They, Tom, they did not intend these guys to go to Washington D.C. and stay there for the rest. They of They absolutely their lives. did. They, they absolutely did. You have members of the founding generation who spent their entire lives in politics. Yes, that is what they that, that is what they intended. Daryl, this debate is beginning to sound stupid. I'm gonna I'm gonna move along. Uh, Lee in Winter Park, Florida. Hey, Lee, what's up? Hey, Tom. I'm I'm almost embarrassed to be asking you this question. I feel like I should know the answer. But all these Republican governors that are getting ready to cut off the enhanced unemployment, how where do they get the power to cut off a federally mandated benefit? It's because the the way unemployment insurance works, and this was put into law back in the 1930s when when um, the first national unemployment insurance program was was put into place. I think it was 1935 by Franklin Roosevelt. And um, back then, states' rights was a big deal. The reason why states' rights was a big deal was because mostly states in the South wanted to do what they could to hold down to keep down black people. And so the law says that the federal government does not send money to you as an unemployed person. Instead, the, the federal government sends money to the states as a large chunk of money. You know, it's, they're not block granted, but it's almost like that. And then the states define their own criteria for what is unemployed and for how long people can have unemployment benefits and under what conditions they can hold them or lose them. So in some states, you can get unemployment benefits for three months, for others, other states, six months, other states it's a year. Some states will take the extra money and pass it along to you. Other states can say, no, we're not going to pass that money along. So it just stays in Washington, D.C. Um, it's just it, what it is, Lee, 
what we're looking at is this ideology, this, this, this belief on the part of conservatives that all people, and this kind of gets back to the conversation with Chris Ryan, uh, the, this belief that all people are basically evil and greedy and lazy. And therefore, you've got to whip them. You've got to poke them with a stick. You've got to you've got to to threaten them to get them to participate in a positive way in society. And it's not true. That's not human nature. There may be a you know, small percentage of people who are like that, but the, the vast majority of Americans, I mean, like well over 95 percent, according to most studies are not grifters and are not looking for an easy handout. And when they take benefits from the government, it's because they actually need them. And so, you know, these, these Republicans are just causing mind-boggling amounts of pain and misery and suffering with this bizarre ideology that, that is, is grounded in a fallacy. Well, what really infuriates me because, you know, a part of me says, all right, if your job has returned, you should go back to work. Yeah. But then they're doing surgery with a with a hatchet instead of a scalpel. Yep. So there are a lot of people whose jobs haven't returned as of yet. That's correct. And there and there are some jobs that you know uh, some people have taken a break and they're looking at these things going seven bucks an hour. You know, I'm not sure. And it's interesting how many employers around the country are now getting up toward or into the fifteen dollar an hour range and discovering that suddenly there's no, no shortage of people looking for work. You know, they, right. they go from going, gee, we can't get anybody to come in and bus tables or be a wait person or, you know, server staff or whatever. Uh, and, uh, you know, when they're offering $3 an hour or $5 or $7 an hour, but when they start offering 10 or 15 bucks an hour, $12 an hour, $14 an hour, uh, in, in some cases even more, suddenly they've got a lot of people. Lee, thank you for the call. It's a great question. That was not a dumb question at all. Most people don't know, you know, how the law was passed back in 1935. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Back with more of your calls right after this. And welcome back. Canyon in Renton, Washington. Hey, Canyon, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. I, earlier, you're, you know, lobbying a little bit for Democrats to uh, call out their, you know, Republican colleagues as corrupt and using, you know, that buzzword corruption, right? Yes, absolutely. All right. Well, well, I think one issue is that the DNC, you know, which really controls who gets to run in uh, particular offices in so many races, uh, is a well-oiled machine that, you know, has shown that they're corrupt, especially, especially with Donna Brazil coming out to Bernie Sanders and apologizing for, you know, helping to put the DNC's thumb on the 2016 uh, Democratic primary. I agree. Um, and you know, I agree. And there's something we can do about it, Canyon. And that's something well, is... Like, is we can get inside the Democratic Party. And that's happening all over the country. Progressives are taking over local Democratic parties in, in county after county, precinct after precinct, city after city, and, and step by step, state after state. There's a lot of old Clinton-era dinosaurs left over who, who went along you know, in, in the early 90s with the idea that, hey, we got to suck up to some of these big corporations uh, because there's, you know, the unions have been destroyed. Reagan was successfully destroyed the unions. There's a lot of those Democrats still around. There's a number of them still in Congress. And the only way we're going to replace them is by getting inside the Democratic Party. Standing on the outside complaining about it is is uh, worse I, I, than I, useless. I, I hear you, but it's you know, replacing individuals one at a time is, you know, a great idea. And eventually I agree with your philosophy that that will work. But what won't work is if or what I think the, the best solution would be to, you know, make the head of the DNC a more open and transparent process to deciding who gets to, to control the Democratic National Committee rather than well, having the, the head of the DNC know, is elected. I mean, you well, know, they're appointed. No, they're it's elected. And, it's an elected but, position. It's a, they're, the, they're president, a, the president gets to handpick, just like Obama picked Wasserman, Wasserman Schultz. Oh, well, that's and because yeah, the president yeah. is the head of the, of the Democratic Party. 
You're talking about the administration of the party. Uh, but, you know, when the president is out of office, the party, the, the party picks its, its head by, uh, by virtue of an election. I know, but, it, you know, I think if by virtue of an election, we would have saw Keith Ellison leading the DNC and we would have saw much different results. Um, we would have saw... You know, I think we would have seen Democratic Keith Ellison heading the DNC. Well, Keith Ellison did have a, a prominent role in the DNC for, for quite a while, but I think you would see him leading the DNC when more progressives are inside the DNC. This is, I mean, back in 2009... You know, after after Obama got elected, the Republicans went into shock. And what did they do? In 2009, they organized this campaign to get Republicans to get uh, Tea Partiers, actually, because the Tea Party followed, you know, in 2009, the, the Koch brothers kind of rolled this out. Um, this whole conquered whatever it is that I used to play these clips from where they said, you know, the most powerful political position in America is precinct committee person. Become a precinct committee person. You can write the you can write the party's platform. You can pick the primary candidates. You get to determine the future of the party. And they were absolutely right. And those guys took over the Republican Party in less than a decade. And we need to do the same thing with the Democratic Party. Canyon, thank you for the call. We'll be back. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. All righty. Well, Mark Carlin is the editor of BuzzFlash. He's an old friend, too, and, and also an old uh, gun rights activist or gun safety activist, gun control activist, I think would, it would be a better say, way to say it. And he wrote this remarkable letter to the attorney general, Merrick Garland. He says, Dear Merrick, you may not remember me. We were both honor students one year apart at Niles West High School a public high school in the Chicago suburb of Morton Grove. I, you know, and Mark says he graduated in 69. Merrick Garland graduated in 70. Uh, Mark went on to Yale. Garland went on to Harvard. But Mark has, you know, he knew Merrick Garland, and he's kind of tracked his career all this time. And uh, so, you know, he talks about when Garland was, was appointed by uh, Bill Clinton. And... It's over at buzzflash.com. And he talks about how Judge Lewis Kaplan rejected Bill Barr's original attempt to take this case, this E. Jean Carroll case, you know, out of the Department of Justice. And basically, you know, Mark is like, why are you doing this? This is what Mark writes. If the law is not ensuring justice, then it shouldn't be the law. It's not your role as attorney general to save Trump from his own potentially illegal behavior. Law and justice must square. If the goal of the DOJ here is to once again use the excuse of preserving presidential immunity, then justice dictates that men or women who occupy that position should not be protected from their personal moral depravities. And this is pretty straightforward. Mark notes, as he's talking to his old high school classmate, Merrick Garland, he said, uh, this is the problem in essence. Trump was stepping outside of the bounds of his office. The unqualified immunity extended to presidents has always relied on a particular assumption, and indeed a history, that a president will behave according to certain civilized standards. If the law justifies taxpayers paying for Donald Trump's salacious accusations, then it's up to the DOJ to write a directive that changes such enforcement of defending the indefensible. This is a really important point. I mean, the, the Nixon Justice Department, 
they knew that Richard Nixon had committed crimes, Richard Nixon commissioned his Justice Department to write a, a memo, the Office of Legal Counsel, the OLC, to write a memo saying that we can't prosecute a sitting president. He's too busy keeping the world safe and preventing nuclear war. Then when Bill Clinton was being investigated for, you know, the Monica stuff and, and you know, lying and et cetera, and they thought they had him on crimes, Bill Clinton had the Justice Department write a memo saying, you can't prosecute a sitting president. And thus, when Donald Trump came along, here's two presidents in the past, a Republican and a Democrat, who had both had the DOJ write these memos saying, can't prosecute a sitting president. Sorry, Charlie. It's time to blow it up. And Mark, Mark lays it out really well. And he lays it out in this open, open letter to his, uh, his old buddy, or his old classmate anyway, Merrick Garland, over at buzzflash.com. The title of the article, an open letter to U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland from BuzzFlash editor Mark Carlin, who attended high school with you. Defending indefensible behavior is not your job. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. All righty. So let me, let me share some other observations with you. There is really a, a fairly remarkable amount of stuff that has been going on in the world. And... Just to recap some of it, first of all, we had over the last six days, eight mass shootings over the last six days. I mean, just, just think about that for a minute. Actually, nine, nine separate mass shootings in the last six days. On um, Monday, on the you know, last Monday, or, or actually it was a, a week ago Monday, uh, May 31st, Oh, this is the June 6th. Okay. Well, I'm a week off. Uh, so. Yeah, this is June. Yeah. Okay. Uh, whoops. So, you know, we, we've, we've got all these mass shootings. There was one in Cleveland, Ohio. There was one in St. Louis, Missouri. There was one in Brooklyn, New York. There was one in Springfield, uh, uh, Mass. There was one in Magnolia, Arkansas. There was one in Toledo, Ohio. Uh, there was one in Muskegon, Michigan. There was one in Indianapolis. What are we going to do about this? You know, Trump made this comment that the uh, that we're going to soon have to ban cars because they're as as dangerous as guns, right? Here's the most, here's the most recent ones. This is uh, from Amy Vanderpool, by the way, from her newsletter, Cheryl. Uh, Monday, June 7, we had uh, a mass shooting in Homestead, Florida. Monday, June, also on Monday, a mass shooting in Cleveland, Ohio. Tuesday, you had mass shootings in Houston, Nashville, and Memphis. Thursday, you had uh, mass shootings in Yonkers and Detroit. Friday, you had mass shootings in Dallas and Savannah and Seattle and Winston-Salem. And Saturday, you had mass shootings in Cincinnati and Austin. And Trump comes along and he says, you know, the way to solve this, he says, you know, if, if you're going to do gun control, you're going to have to do car control. Because cars kill people, too. And in fact, a car did kill a person at a, at a protest this weekend, although it appears that this was a person who was drunk as opposed to a person who was intent on homicide, but they're still trying to figure that out. So, yeah, okay. If cars can kill people, guns can kill people, then, you know, using Trump's logic and, and the logic of the right, why don't we just regulate guns the same way we do cars? Very simple. You got to have a driver's license, you've got to have a shooter's license, you've got to have insurance, and you've got to have, you know, it's, it's got to be registered. Yeah. Step straightforward stuff. Meanwhile, we have legislators going to Phoenix. Now, the, the giant scam, this, this extraordinary giant scam is running in Phoenix right now, where they're pretending, essentially, to be uh, recounting the vote. But in fact, instead of recounting the vote, what they're doing is they're scanning ballots with like infrared light looking for evidence of bamboo fragments that might indicate that these were phony ballots that were flown in from China. I'm, I'm serious. This is, this is their theory. 
And of course, no ballots were flown in from China, and there's probably not any bamboo fragments, although who knows where the paper originally came from. Um, but now you've got four different states, five different states, that have sent legislators to Phoenix to look at what's going on and say, oh, you know, this is interesting. Maybe we should do this, right? Republican legislators from Colorado, Nevada, Alaska, Virginia, and Wisconsin have been making this pilgrimage to Phoenix, Arizona to tour the Arizona Veterans Memorial Coliseum, where they're doing this so-called Arizona model audit. Right. This is, this is starting to get scary. I mean, this is an open assault on democracy. There is a federal law that says that you may not tamper with, you may not, you, that, that, the, that the government of, of Arizona, of the state of Arizona, may not release any of the ballots or any of the voting machines into the hands of anybody other than election officials in Arizona for any purpose. And what have they done? They've taken these actual ballots and actual voting machines and handed them over to right-wing cranks associated with the Donald Trump campaign who are now inspecting them for bamboo particles. I, this, is the, this is QAnon, right? This is the whole thing. And, and the Justice Department sends a letter to the, to the state saying, you, you realize what you're doing is a federal felony. Well, in addition to that, Arizona's going to have to spend a small fortune because they're not going to be able to use any of these voting machines again. What are they going to do with the next election? Are the Republicans control the House and Senate in Arizona? Have they appropriated money for new voting machines? Are they just going to punt? Are these guys reprogramming the voting machines so they only put Republicans in office? I mean, what's, what's going on? We don't know. What we do know is that Republicans in five other states are going, hey, uh, this is pretty interesting stuff. Colorado, Nevada, Alaska, Virginia, and Wisconsin. This is not healthy. This is not healthy at all. By the way, uh, Monday, last Monday, and, and I didn't really cover this much, but uh, last Monday, four attorneys from the Justice Department filed a brief in the, in the district court saying that uh, the charges against Donald Trump by E. Jean Carroll, suing him for defamation because he called her a liar about her saying that she raped him. Four attorneys who work for you and me and the U.S. Justice Department have filed this brief saying Dismiss this case. E. Jean Carroll gets nothing. Donald Trump wins. It's amazing. Oh, and some good news. Last week, and uh, this deserves a, a lot more coverage, actually. Uh, it hasn't been signed by Governor Paulus yet in, in Colorado. But uh, last week, the Colorado State Legislature passed this sweeping health care bill uh, that's supposed to, to, uh, to reduce health care prices. And, you know, this, this might be, I, I, I actually need to learn a lot more about this, and we'll try to get a guest on about this, because I think this is absolutely fascinating. Uh, Amy Vanderpool in her Sherrill newsletter is saying, you know, uh, this could be a, dem a state democratic experiment that could provide a roadmap for the rest of America. And, you know, and I think that's how it started in Canada. You know, it started in, um, in uh, Saskatchewan, the province of Canada. You know, they're, they're kind of their equivalent of a state. Tommy Douglas was the uh, provincial governor. And he had been pushing this thing for 20 years. There's a whole chapter about Tommy Douglas and Canadian health care in, in my new book, The Hidden History of American Healthcare. And, and he got it passed in Saskatchewan with help from the federal government because they, they had, you know, some supports already in place, sort of like we have, uh, you know, with CHIP and things like that. And so he, he had some money from the federal government, but mostly it was state. It was, the, it was the province. And it worked so well that other provinces in Canada 
said, hey, let's do this. Now, keep in mind, this was back in the 60s, uh, either the late 50s or the early 60s, when uh, the insurance companies did not have anything close to the power that they have right now. So, you know, whether this is going to work in Colorado with the insurance companies just, you know, basically brutalizing the American people, extracting trillions of dollars every year from our pockets and putting it into the pockets of their senior executives and their stockholders. It's a very different time and it's a different country, but, you know, maybe we can overcome them. I think it's possible. I really do. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. And this wonderful era of technology has, uh, over the last year or three, we've moved our entire studio from analog to digital. We know Things are no longer just plugged into each other. Everything's going through, you know, a router system. And so when you get a problem like we had this weekend where the entire power goes down to the entire system, things just get scrambled. It's, it's very distressing, but you know, it's life in the big city. But for right now, uh, in, you know, last, uh, last week, the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals, Missouri has this uh, proposed ban on abortion. And the uh, Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals came down on, uh, this was on Wednesday, and said, uh, this is not legal. This is not constitutional. You can't do this. It, it basically banned abortion before women knew that they were even pregnant. And so this ruling now is going to go to the Supreme Court. And going to the Supreme Court, it's going to get, I think, very strange. Um, you could pick up camera one, Nate. Why don't you try that and just, you know. Yeah, well, if it goes out, we can pop off it. And, and uh, so, hi. Uh, so, so, I think this is, this is something that we need to be paying attention to. Is that, and, 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 and by, by that, what I mean is that you've got basically two kinds of states in the United States. We have states that are run hierarchically and with hierarchy and patriarchy, which are the principal values of the so-called conservative movement. The abortion issue is, is, you know, a great example of it. It's not the only example of it. There are multiple examples of this. But really what the, what the Republicans believe in is hierarchy and patriarchy. And taking away from women control over their own bodies and this, frankly, this goes way beyond abortion. I mean, this, this also deals with things like uh, making birth control available to women. There's a lot of conservatives who don't want birth control to be available to women. They certainly don't want the form of birth control that can jettison an, a fertilized uh, egg that is still in the fallopian tubes. It has not yet implanted. In other words, it has not even started to become a, uh, a zygote yet. Uh, you know, which you can do within a couple of days of, of having sex. You can take these pills. They definitely don't want those. They're claiming this is about religion. But this is coming down from a religion, from the Catholic religion, which is the most hierarchical and patriarchal of arguably of all the religions in the world. It has a man at its head. Only men are allowed to be priests. Only men are allowed to be citizens of the Vatican City, or at least that was the case about 20 years ago when I wrote about it in a book. I'm guessing it's still the case. Um, and, you know, men control the whole show, period. And men decided in the 1800s, in the late 1800s, this is not Catholic doctrine that goes back way, way, way back, that women should not be able to get, you know, safe legal abortions, that it just should not be abortion should not be available to women. And, and birth control should not be available to people. This is, this is patriarchy on steroids. So the states that are not run by conservatives, that are willing, and that would be the democratically run states, um, the Democratic Party states, uh, states that, are, that acknowledge the rights of women in the workplace, 
in the home to their own bodies. Those states need to be preparing right now to protect abortion rights in their states, just as aggressively as the states that are outlawing abortion are, are you know, creating the new bifurcation in America. Where right now we have some states, you know, the red states where you can't get uh, Obamacare, uh, if you have Medicare, you, if you're low income, if you're making between th th basically $3,000 and $15,000 a year, you make too little to qualify for Obamacare and for subsidies. And, and in these states, too much to, to qualify for Medicaid. Now, in the blue states, everybody, all you know, low-income working people can get Medicaid, but in red states, they can't. So we've already got that split. And what these guys want to do is now add another split to that and make it so that in the, in the, uh, in the red states, uh, you know, you can't get an abortion. The blue states, I think, need to be preparing for this. And, and what does this say about our country? What does this say about our future? Because these are really two different governing philosophies. You've got the governing philosophy of essentially, you know, male-dominated, white male-dominated fascism that the Republican Party has fully embraced. And we're seeing this across every, every aspect of what they're doing. And then you've got the governing philosophy of democracy, of, of having America be a, a functioning democracy that Democrats have embraced. What do we do with this? We'll be back with more of the news and more of my thoughts and yours in this uh, kind of national town hall meeting we have here every day on the Tom Hartman program. And in the meantime, don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport. Never was intended to be. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.